Welcome and thank you for joining us for a three-part PrimeMed podcast series on uncontrolled asthma. This is podcast three, Uncontrolled Asthma, Practical Considerations for Primary Care. My name is Anne-Marie Ditto. I'm a U.S. medical expert for GlaxoSmithKline in the U.S. Medical Affairs. My name is Anne-Marie Ditto. I'm a U.S. medical expert for GlaxoSmithKline in the U.S. Medical Affairs Respiratory Division. I'm a board-certified allergist immunologist, and I'm a fellow in the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, as well as the American College of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology, and the Illinois Society of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. And hello, I'm Dr. Barbara Yon. I'm a family physician. I have uh, many years of experience as a rural family physician, also as a clinical researcher, and I am currently the chief science officer for the COPD Foundation. I am a board-certified family doc and a fellow of the American Academy of Family Physicians. The purpose of today's podcast is to discuss practical considerations for managing uncontrolled asthma in a primary care setting. At this point in our podcast series, we have discussed the importance of both controlling asthma and reducing risk. As a PCP with a busy practice, how do you assess control in your patients with asthma? And how do you define control? Barbara? Well, that's a great question. I like to assess control uh, using one of the validated tools. The reason I like to do that is I think it saves time. Uh, so I use the asthma control test, the ACT, or the asthma APGAR. And actually, uh, my MA goes over these with the patients before I'm in the room or before I get on the telehealth visit. So I have all that information collected and scored when I first meet the patient. So it saves me a lot of time. Both of these really do well with the control of symptoms and changes in activities, but neither one of those tools really addresses exacerbations or risks. So in addition to those, I have to think about the risks, which are exacerbations and side effects to medication, for example. Now, we do have other objective measures. Uh, one that we can certainly use in our office is the peak expiratory flow rate. And I know a lot of people have just made this a vital sign for their patients with asthma. Uh, it's a little different now in the days of COVID, uh, and we may not be doing it as frequently because we worry, are we aerosolizing uh, potentially the virus with peak flow? But we have done it before. I think we're going to go back to doing it, and we may do it with a filter. The other things we can do easily are cell counts. Uh, most of us have a blood count, uh, a white count with differential on our patients, and we can look at it, or it's easy to get. The ones that are a little more difficult or a little less likely to occur in primary care practice, unfortunately, are spirometry, although it can be done and can be done very well in primary practice, although it can be done 
and done very well in primary care practice. I think spirometry should be used more to help identify those patients in whom we don't suspect that they have lower lung function than normal, uh, and there's a lot of them out there. The exhaled nitric oxide, or pheno, is also a very nice metric for assessing control, but doesn't happen as often in primary care. Uh, frequently, when we're doing collaborative care with our allergy or pulmonology colleagues, they will be getting it. So our goal is to normalize symptoms, to get the control, asthma control score or the asthma APGAR in the normal range while people are actually continuing activities appropriate for them, not the decreased activities they do, and not using rescue medications more than once or twice a week at the most. I don't want them waking up at night. No one should be waking up from their asthma at night, and I don't want them to change any activities because of their asthma or to miss work or school. So those are my goals. So control is both control of symptoms and risk reduction. Can you elaborate a little bit on how you use or how you assess control using the various tools available? So you mentioned, for example, that you'll have an MA use a tool, a questionnaire before you go in the office. Um, what about spirometry? I understand that spirometry is not always available in primary care offices. So how do you assess airflow limitation and what tools do you use or are there more than one tool that you use to assess symptoms? Well, the symptom, I, as I said, I, I tend to use the asthma APGAR tool because it's three questions, one on daytime, one on nighttime symptoms, on an activity limitation. But then it goes ahead and asks patients about their triggers it asks them about the medications that they take and how do they take them and do they take them as uh, we think that we recommended. Uh, so I like that for control of symptoms. But I think one of the things I really have discovered is very helpful to get the patient's buy-in to think about this is ask them what they're not doing that they'd like to be able to do. What if they had to give up because of their asthma? And what would they like the asthma treatment to allow them to do again? So what are their personalized goals? And then spirometry. I know it doesn't get used as often. Then people say, well, all these people have normal spirometry. Well, I have to admit, I was quite surprised when I started doing spirometry, uh, that they don't all have what I thought would be normal uh, FEV1s and normal FV, uh, FEV1s to FVC ratios. I thought, oh, yeah, they'll all be fine, especially the adolescents uh, and the uh, you know, older children. But they don't have normal spirometry. It's really important to use, especially in the ones that were having trouble uh, with control, the ones that are having exacerbations. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of like an EKG. If someone were having chest pain, even suggestion of chest pain, we all get an EKG. We would think we were not doing our 
uh, appropriate management and assessment if we didn't get an EKG? Well, I'd like us to start thinking that spirometry is similar. And getting an EKG takes your MA or nursing personnel kind of out of operations for a little while while they do the EKG. Well, the same is true for spirometry. But again, it is so important that it needs to be done. Now, if you can't do it in your office, then think about where you can do it. Is there a hospital close? Uh, is there a pulmonary function lab? Uh, and we need to think about how often it's done. And I don't always agree with some of my specialty colleagues, probably because I see less severe asthma than they do. So if someone's spirometry is normal, I'm probably not going to repeat it unless uh, in less than about three or four years, unless they start having more symptoms or more exacerbations. Now, people who have frequent symptoms and frequent exacerbations, and I'm using uh, multiple medications and higher dose medications, I'm likely to check their spirometry probably once a year or so. Uh, so peak flow uh, can also be done, and the MA can do this. If you're going to use peak flow, you need to have done it several times so you know what the patient's usual peak flow is, and that's recorded. Uh, but if they're having really severe symptoms, their peak flow is going to be low. So the questionnaires and then going on from the questionnaires to peak flow, uh, blood eosinophils, and my, you know, spirometry, and the pheno usually from my allergy and asthma specialty colleagues. Great. And Gina even has questions. There are just four questions um, assessing you know, uh, limitations in activity or nighttime awakening, uh, symptoms during the day or use of a rescue medication. And it's just four questions. And if patients answer yes to one or two of them, the asthma is only partly controlled and uncontrolled if it's three or four. So that's another quick questionnaire if, you know, uh, physicians want different choices as far as questionnaires. We've talked about goals of symptom control and risk reduction. Would you mind elaborating a little bit more on risk reduction? Yeah, I think risk reduction kind of gets short shrift frequently. Uh, we need to think about uh, several things. For example, uh, people who are using a lot of quick reliever or rescue or short-acting uh, bronchodilator, uh, Asaba, if they're using, uh, you know, three or more canisters a year, that's a lot of use. And while I may not think only that they're using a lot of albuterol usually, that's the usual one, uh, and that they're having side effects from that, well, they may be, and we're not asking them. It's not much fun if they're having to use a lot of it and they're having uh, tachycardia, for example, and feeling shaky. Uh, that's not acceptable for people to have to feel that way. If they're having uh, more than one exacerbation, I have to admit I have in the past said, oh, you can have one exacerbation and I'm not going to worry too much. But you start adding that up, and if they have one exacerbation every year and they're having to use 
five to ten days of oral steroids over the next 10 to 15 years, that's a lot of oral steroids. And I think we need to put that in perspective as a potential risk. Uh, the people that have the lower FEV1, why are they having this low uh, of lung function? Even if they do have more reversibility, I still am concerned about this. Uh, you know, the medication use, the poor inhaler technique, uh, and inadequate adherence, these are really risks also that we need to address. And we talked about before, you should not assume just because someone's not using their inhaler and you look and they've only refilled their maintenance medicine once in the last three months, you need to figure out why. It may be that the patient can't afford them or they can't even afford the copay and they're embarrassed to tell you. Uh, it may be they're afraid of them. It may be that Aunt Matilda told them this was dangerous and the only way you're ever going to find out is saying, gee, it looks like you're not using it all the time. Could we talk about why? The comorbidities, the obesity, the chronic rhinosinusitis, the elevated blood eosinophils are all things that we need to address. And of course, pregnancy. Uh, pregnancy is very interesting because people who have asthma, uh, women who have asthma and become pregnant, about a third of them, the asthma will get better, a third of them it will stay the same, and a third of them, it'll get worse. So I'm not surprised if someone uh, is going into pregnancy and she really hasn't needed much for her asthma and suddenly she needs a lot. The elevated phenos and the allergic asthma, uh, we need to think about that. And the ICS, we would like to keep the inhaled corticosteroid at low dose to medium dose. Uh, again, you think about these people taking asthma medications for 10, 15, 20, 30, 50 years, we would like to keep their uh, steroid exposure at the lower end. And of course, then the ultimate question, I guess, for people who are at high risk for uh, severe morbidity and mortality from asthma is people who've been in the hospital and ever had to be intubated because of their asthma. Absolutely. We know someone who's been intubated has nearly died of his or her asthma, so we know how bad asthma can get in that particular individual. And I think these are important points that you brought up, these um, different factors, these different risks for poor outcomes, because these are risks whether or not patients have symptoms. So we, if we do use the questionnaires and we do ask the right questions and we get um, the answers for the symptoms and people aren't just decreasing the activity, but we honestly know what their symptom burden is and it's not high, yet they're having frequent exacerbations or they have a low FEV1 that bronchodilates, these are also things that then tell us that this person's at risk despite not having the symptoms that we would expect to tell us that the patient's at risk. So how often should we assess asthma in our patients? Gina mentions continuous assessment. What does this mean and why is it important? Well, as we talked about way back in the beginning, asthma is 
variable disease in many people. Now, there are people who have severe asthma and they have lots of symptoms and lots of problems all day, every day. But most people with asthma, um, they'll have good days and bad days and good weeks and bad weeks. So we need to continually assess that. Uh, we may only see them on uh, the bad days, and so we think every day is bad. Uh, or we may see them when things are good and they don't tell us about the bad. So we need to assess it on a regular basis. Remember, a lot of the tools only assess asthma over the past two weeks or four weeks. One of the things I like to do is I like to give the patients these tools to take home and in a paper fashion, I, you know, still, I'm an old doc, so I guess I still use paper and pencil, but I have them tape it up to the refrigerator or put it on a magnet and, uh, you know, check it periodically what is going on, and then they can let me know if things are not going well. So to me, that is part of continuous assessment. I can't do that because I only see the patients uh, one time a year, which is really bad, or the three or four times a year that I would like to see them for asthma assessment. That doesn't give me a total picture. So I need the patient, the family, the parents, to buy in, to have a partnership. We need to address this together. Uh, and we need them to come in for visits. I think that, you know, we've talked about other things. What gets tested is what gets reported, is what the patients think are important. If we don't have them come in for regular visits, they may not think that their asthma is really all that important to address. We learned that with diabetes when we started doing the hemoglobin A1C, for example, and we clearly have these patients come in uh, usually three or four times a year, and I have seen my patients now take management of their diabetes a lot more seriously because I am spending more time and energy talking about managing their disease. And I think the same thing happened with asthma when we do regular checkups. We talk about inhaler technique. We talk about adherence. We talk about symptom burden. Uh, we talk about all of these things. Uh, and if things are not going well, we add some things like comorbidities. We need to be checking those. And remember that comorbidities can change over time. Somebody can have GERD, we treat it, seems to be really pretty good for six months, a year or two, then they're back to having GERD again. So we need to think about that. And also, there are many people with really difficult to control asthma uh, that I don't need to do it alone, and the patient and I don't need to be the only members of the team. We have specialists to help us. Uh, whether it's the allergist for allergy testing, for assessing uh, other comorbidities, uh, for doing the spirometry maybe. Maybe it's an ENT uh, or a pulmonologist who is interested in focal cord dysfunction uh, or chronic rhinosinusitis. All of these things are really part of what we need in our armamentarium to deal with asthma. Those are great points, Barbara, and especially 
like you gave the example with diabetes and seeing patients more frequently, it also gives us the opportunity to sort of reinforce what we're uh, teaching to our patients about asthma. Also gives us the time to understand better their understanding of asthma and to catch things maybe as they may be beginning or if there are changes that are starting to occur before they get really bad. Because as we know, sometimes symptoms just creep up slowly until, as you've mentioned before, people just reduce their activity, et cetera. So this gives us opportunity by these quick checks. They can be quick visits just to kind of stay on top of things and reinforce the partnership with the patient. So once again, thank you very much for your insights, Barbara. To summarize what we discussed today, tools like spirometry and patient questionnaires are available and can be simple to use. Assessments, whether objective, for example, spiro, subjective, such as ACT, the GINA questions, or the asthma APGAR, or both, should be incorporated into routine management of asthma patients and have the potential to lead to improved patient care. Not only can they help diagnose asthma and assess severity, but they can be used to follow patients and assess response to therapy. Asthma management is a continuous process with assessment, adjustment of medications, treating comorbidities, and assessing response. Thanks to all of our listeners for joining us in the third and final of our three, po- three podcast series on asthma. We hope you enjoyed the series.